want to commend you for being here because you walked in, you found out that Pastor Mike's not here, and you found out that I'm preaching on Deuteronomy, and you stayed. <laughs> and some of you just found out that I'm preaching on Deuteronomy, and you're in the middle rows, and that's called God's sovereignty because now you're stuck. No, but this is one of my favorite passages and texts in Scripture because I'm the type of person that likes to know what people expect of me. And I return the favor as well. In fact, my wife and I, on our first date, after I took her to Chili's because I'm classy, um, I ordered the queso. Don't worry, we, we got the fancy stuff. I took her to, to Santa Monica, and we went out on the pier. And we walked out to the end of the pier, and I said, well, why not? Let's, let's go for it. So I said, look, here's my expectations for our relationship. Uh, I'm dating you because I want to find out if you're marriage material, and I know that you probably want to find out if I'm marriage material. And so let's make an agreement and set the expectations for our relationship that if at any point we determine that one or the other is not marriage material, we'll end it and move on. And thankfully, she agreed. And even more thankfully, we ended up being marriage material. And we sit here today, 16 years later, and I'm grateful for that, right? But I've also found that there's two types of people in life. Because there's, there's two types of people, and it really boils down to what you do with the craft box of macaroni and cheese. Because there's the type of person that takes the box, opens it up, and takes the box and throws it in the trash can after they've poured the noodles in the boiling water, and they say, well, I'll figure it out on my own. And then there's people like me who sit here and say, no, the the expectations for how you should make Kraft macaroni and cheese are on the back of the box. And somebody invented them and went to the trouble to print them on there, and they want you to make it the way that they've written on the back of the box. And so I pour the milk out and measure it out. I married somebody who throws the box in the trash can. I'm also the type of person that if you're my co-pilot and I'm driving somewhere, I don't want to just know what my next turn is. I want to know my next three turns. Because I don't want to turn left from the right turn left lane and then you're telling me you got to go left again and now I'm trying to cut across traffic to get over to the left. I like to be prepared. And that's why I love this passage of Scripture. Because Moses opens with a question and he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? I want to know that. What does God expect of me? I can get behind Moses' leadership style here. That's what this text this morning is going to be about. And what we're going to find is that God desires that we as his people live lives of godliness as an expression of our fear of God, our love for God, and our worship of God. Moses is going to lay this out for us in this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and it begins with that question there in verse 12, what does the Lord require of you? Some of you have wondered that. Some of you can think back to the time before you became a Christian when you thought to yourself, what does God want from me? If I become a Christian, what's going to have to change about my life? If, If I become a follower of Jesus, what does God expect from me? Some of you are here this morning and you're still wondering that. You're giving Christianity a try, you're showing up at church because somebody invited you and and you're not really sure what to think about all of this and you're wondering, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What is required? What is expected of me? Well, Moses is going to give us the answer this morning and the answer is not from some preacher up here. The answer comes from God. The answer comes from the Bible. The answer comes from his word, his revelation of himself to us. And so God's going to tell us this morning what he expects and requires of us. But before we get into it, I want to make one thing abundantly clear. This is not a passage about how to be saved, okay? 
when we're talking about what does God expect of us, we're saying of us, defining that as Christians, people who are already saved. That's who this is written for this morning. This is not a passage that's going to be about you've got to do all of these things and then God will love you, then God will accept you. Because I want to make one thing abundantly clear as we start, that your standing eternally before the Father has nothing to do with your work. It has everything to do with Christ's work finished and accomplished on the cross. Your righteousness is not merited, which means it's not earned. So unlike some religions out there that teach that you need to just be good enough and at the end of your life, maybe God will accept you if you've got enough good works, right? People are often asked, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, sure, I'm going to go to heaven. Why are you going to go to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. No, that's not what eternity is about. None of us can earn our way to heaven. To become a Christian means that you have repented from your sins, which means you've recognized them as sin and you're turning from them. And then you're trusting in something. And here's what you're trusting in, okay? You are trusting that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you can be forgiven. And you are trusting that Jesus rose from the dead so that you can live with him forever. You are believing that God has given you his spirit to follow Jesus as king. That following Jesus, that's what our passage is about this morning. As we're talking about this, let me just make sure that I frame that this way. This is not a message on how to be saved. This is a message about if you're a believer, what does God expect of you? What is God looking for from us? That's the question. What does the Lord require of you? And it begins there in verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. I wonder, what do you fear? Maybe you think back to being little and you were afraid of the dark. Just last night, my son, one of them came to me in in our room, and he was afraid. And so I walked him back to his bedroom and reminded him, you're okay, and mom and dad are here, there's nothing to to be afraid of. And I brought him back, and I put him back in his bed, and I said, do you want me to turn your nightlight on for you? And he said, yeah. And I turned his nightlight on for him, and I left, and he was fine after that. We can be afraid of the dark, right? Other times, uh, we're afraid of, of things maybe a little bit more beyond our control. For instance, you maybe remember back to the beginning of all of this craziness with COVID-19 in, in 2020 when we had no idea what this was and the fear that was gripping everyone because there was hysteria about what this might look like and what this might turn out to be. And so uh, we became afraid of a virus. And so what happened? We, we acted. We took all these different precautions. Or maybe you're afraid of being in a car accident because in the past you've been in a car accident. And you have those memories, and and so you take precautions. Maybe some of those precautions mean you're not going to drive with certain people because you've seen them drive, and you don't want to get in the car with them. But you're afraid, and so you take precautions. Or perhaps you're afraid of a break-in. You're fearful that somebody might break into your house. So you quadruple lock your doors at night, and you set your alarm system, and you sleep next to your best friend, Smith & Wesson, (laughs) sitting on your side table. Or maybe you're afraid of identity theft. So you have LifeLock and Experian just as safety nets because you don't have any money in any sort of institution. You've pulled it all out and you've cut open your mattress and it's buried in your mattress because nobody's going to steal your identity. But you've acted on that fear. Or maybe a different type of fear. You've been to the Grand Canyon and you've walked up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and you've had this thought. Who thought it was a good idea not to build a fence around this thing? 
Who thought we could trust people not to get too close, especially with the invention of the smartphones, right? Unfortunately, tragically, every year, there are stories of people trying to get the selfie on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and they get too close and fall in. I remember going there with my family, and thankfully the twins were small enough that we could strap them. I had one on, on my back, and Amanda had one on hers, but we only had two backs, and, and we have Luke, and Luke is only 18 months older than the twins, and so we had a death grip on that kid's hand because he's a little bit too curious for his own good. But we were at the Grand Canyon, and we respected it. There was a, a, a reverence for the power of that chasm that caused us to stay back. Or maybe you fear going to prison, so you do what? You obey the laws of the land. What's my point in all this other than to remind you of everything that you're afraid of? My point is this. Fear leads to action. Fear leads to action. Fear is not a passive feeling. Fear is a feeling that produces a response in us, whether that's taking precautions or a, a reverence that that might inspire in us or some wisdom and some shrewdness about how we conduct ourselves. We find fear in the Bible. In fact, there's at least three different types of fear that we see in the Bible. First type of fear is that traditional fear, this fear that we've been talking about, being afraid of the dark or being afraid of getting your house broken into, being afraid for your well-being. We could put it that way. First Samuel chapter 21, we find that David is afraid of the king of Gath, king of Kish. So that's that fear for his own well-being, that traditional fear. Or in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10 Israel has been led out of the, the slavery in Egypt, and they're fleeing from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh and his armies and his chariots are pursuing the Israelites. And it says in Exodus 14 that they, the Israelites, feared greatly. They were afraid for their well-being. So there's that traditional fear in the Bible. But the second type of fear we find in the Bible is uh, a fear that produces wisdom. A fear that is described by Job in Job 28, verse 28, where it says, he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, this is wisdom. Now this fear has a, an even more specific definition. This is the fear of the Lord that we're talking about now. And it's a fear that produces wisdom. The fear of the Lord, this is wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. Or in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So there's a fear that causes us to act, right? That produces action in us. And that action that this fear produces is wisdom, shrewdness, godly living, we could put it that way. The third fear that we find in the Bible is related to this fear that produces wisdom. And this is a fear that is marked by a reverence and a respect. This is the fear that is the fear of the Lord. We find it in Exodus chapter 20 after the Israelites have come to the foot of Mount Sinai and God has shown up and the mountain has sh shook under the, the power of the majesty of God and the fire and the, the smoke and God speaks in thunder and the flashes of lightning and we read this in Exodus chapter 20 verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. That's that first fear. That's that traditional fear. That's their fear for their well-being. And they stood far away and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Uh, that fear for their well-being. Verse 20, Moses responded to them and said this, Do not fear in that way. Don't be fearful for your well-being, for God has come to test you in order that the fear of him might be before you, in order that you might not sin. And so Moses says to the people, Don't be afraid. God's come to make you fearful. 
don't be afraid for your well-being. Instead, if you're going to be fearful, fear the Lord. And what does fearing the Lord look like according to this? Living a godly life. He's come to test you that the fear of him might be in you that you might not sin. That reverence for God, that respect for the Lord that impacts the way that we live our lives. It's there in Psalm chapter 5, verse 7 as well. Psalm chapter 5, verse 7 says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. It's a worshipful fear that we find here. Reverential fear. Well, which type of fear do we think that Moses is talking about here in Deuteronomy chapter 10? Which type of fear does God expect of us? What does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God? I believe it's a combination of those latter two fears, the wise living in the reverence and respect that God is talking about through Moses here. See, fundamental to what the Lord expects of his people, what the Lord requires of us is a reverence that results in godly living, a reverence that results in wise living. And so as we sit here this morning and think to ourselves, okay, God, what do you want from us? What do you expect of us? The first thing that we want to write down, our first point this morning is this. Fear the Lord through godly living. Fear the Lord through godly living. That, that's, that's what he's calling on us to do. Okay, fearing the Lord. We're in the Old Testament right now, clearly in Deuteronomy, and, and maybe you think about the fear of the Lord as an Old Testament concept, and you're wondering this morning, is that a New Testament concept? Are we expected as, as believers, as New Testament Christians, should we, be, should we fear the Lord anymore? After all, doesn't John say perfect love casts out fear? Well, let's look at some other passages, and maybe we can understand a little bit more. Philippians 2, verse 12. Philippians 2, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Here it is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What type of fear is Paul talking about here? He's talking about this godly, reverential fear that produces wise living. He's talking about the, the fear of the Lord. Also, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Colossians 3, verse 22. Paul says, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but instead with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So Paul's instructions to the bondservants was that they should obey their masters in everything out of a fear of the Lord, a fear of the Lord. 1 Peter 1, 17. 1 Peter 1, 17, Peter says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What type of fear does Peter want us to conduct ourselves with as we are strangers and aliens as he's called us elsewhere in Peter? What type of fear should we have but a, a fear of the Lord? This reverence for the Lord that produces wise living, that produces godliness. And so is this a New Testament concept? Yes, it's absolutely a New Testament concept. As Christians, we should fear the Lord in, a, in such a way that it manifests itself in our godliness. Well, what then of when John says perfect love casts out fear? Well, it casts out a fear that as Christians we shouldn't have. What type of fear as Christians should we not have? And that's, that's the fear of God's judgment and condemnation. That being recipients of the love of God, the love of God 
removes that fear from us, right? Romans 8, 1, what does it say? There is therefore now no, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you and I sitting here, if you are in Christ, Christian, you don't fear God's judgment and condemnation. That's what his love has cast out from us. But a fearful respect and reverence from God that manifests itself in a godly life, as Christians, should we have that present in our lives? Yes, absolutely. How do I cultivate that? What does that look like? Well, it begins by knowing and having a right understanding of who God is. And that's there in our passage. Look back in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look at verse 14. It says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Why should we fear the Lord? Why should we be reverential towards the Lord? Why should we respect him and live a godly life of obedience to him? Because he's the God of the universe. Because he owns everything. He owns us. Right? We are the creature. He is the creator. And so thus he's worthy of our reverence. He's worthy of our respect. He's worthy of our submission and our obedience. But not only that, look down in verse 17. He emphasizes this even more, Moses does. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. We understand, right, that the definition of God is that there is no higher being than God. So for God to demand our obedience, our allegiance, our submission to him is not a problem because that's what God does. He's the highest of all conceivable beings. He's the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and as such, he's worthy He's worthy of our reverence, worthy of our respect, worthy of our submission and obedience. See, the fear of the Lord rightly frames our lives in light of the greatness and the power and the majesty of God. The fear of the Lord rightly frames our lives. In, in other words, we understand who we are in light of who he is. And understanding who he is changes how we live our lives. We conduct ourselves with godliness in response. We live in a culture that increasingly lacks reverence for anything. Back in March in Beverly Hills, there was a jewelry store that was robbed by a group of thieves that showed up at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. There was a time that a band of thieves would have thought, 2 p.m. on a Tuesday is probably not a good time to try to knock off a jewelry store in Beverly Hills. And they brought sledgehammers, and they brought axes, and they just went to, to work on the, the window of this jewelry store, which was security glass, so it took them a while to break through this. Meanwhile, no consequences. They break through. The, the employees in the store had all just fallen prostrate on the ground because they were fearful for their lives. And these crooks come in, and, and they make off with anywhere between 3 to $5 million worth of jewelry at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon in broad daylight. There's no fear of anything in those eyes. There's no reverence and respect for any sort of authority in their eyes. Or because we think the 1800s and Billy the Kid is, is really cool, we are apparently robbing freight trains again. In fact, Union Pacific has reported that over the last year, year over year, they experienced a 160% increase in freight train robberies in L.A. County. And so if you didn't get your Amazon order, I know where the wrapper is to it. These groups would come and, and break into these freight cars, and they would 
make off with whatever they could get their hands on inside. And, and some of you may have seen the pictures from the news articles. There was literally just garbage all along the railroad tracks, discarded boxes, Amazon packages, UPS packages, everything else, just littering the, the railway tracks. We think, what makes somebody so brazen so as to do that? It's a total lack of respect and reverence for any sort of authority. Certainly, there, there's no fear there. For us as Christians, we don't fear judgment. We don't fear condemnation. But we have a reverence and a respect for God that causes us to have this healthy fear of him that manifests itself in us saying, I want to live a life that pleases him. I want to make sure that, that I live a life that he looks at, and at the end of my life, when I stand before the Lord, I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Moses describes what this fear should look like for us a little bit more back in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look again at verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? And now here he describes that a little bit more for us, to walk in all his ways. So what does it mean to fear the Lord our God? Well, it means to walk in all his ways. And, and to walk in the ways of the Lord is to cultivate a close relationship with him. To have a life that is marked by a consistent pattern of behavior that pleases the Lord. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, we read this. Enoch, remember Enoch? Enoch walked with God. He walked with him to walk in all his ways. Enoch is an example of somebody who walked with God. And what did God do? God said, Enoch, I want you to come be with me. And it says, he was not for God took him. That consistent pattern of godly behavior, that pattern of life that, that pleases the Lord. To walk in all his ways. It's there in Psalm 56, 13 as well as the, the reason why God has delivered us. Psalm 56, 13, You have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life, that I might walk before him, that my life might manifest a consistent pattern of godliness, a, a lifestyle that pleases the Lord. Psalm 81, 13, the Lord makes it clear that he desires, again, just like he does here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, that we should do this, that we should walk in his ways. Psalm 81, 13, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. That Israel would, would have that consistent pattern of godliness that marks them. What should that look like? Well, jump down to verse 13. To fear the Lord our, our God and to, to walk in all his ways, and then verse 13, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. To keep them, which means to carefully observe them and do them. To carefully observe, to pay attention to, and to do. To do what? The commandments of God, the laws of God, and the statutes, his rules and regulations. So when the Lord lays out his rules and regulations and his commandments for us, the thing that God desires of us is that we would keep them that we would do them. At our dinner table, it never fails every single night. There's a negotiation between my wife and I and one of our twins where they will come to us and say, can I be done? In fact, they don't say it that way. Here's how they say it. Can I be full? <laughs> we still need to work on their concept of what it means to be full, but can I be full? And what they're asking is, do I have to eat all my food on my plate? And without fail... My wife and I say, no, you can't be done. Yes, you have to eat all of the food on your plate. Why? Because we're cruel? Maybe a little bit. No. Why do we do that? We do that because we know that what we put on their plate is good for them. 
because we know that they need nourishment, that their little bodies need to grow, and we know that they need to finish the food, and whether or not they always like the food that they've been served is less important than the fact that the food that they've been served is good for them, and it will make them strong as they grow up. We all, sometimes we go to the Lord, and we take our Bibles, not our plates, and we say, Lord, can I be done? Can I be full? How much obedience do you want from me? Remember, y'all, we're not talking about justification. We're talking about sanctification. Sometimes we go to the Lord and say, how much Christ-likeness do I really need in my life? Can I be full? And every single time, just like every single time for my wife and I, God's response is going to be, no, you can't be full. There's more to be done. Deuteronomy 6.17 says we should diligently keep the commandments of God. We should diligently keep them. Psalm 119.4, again, you've commanded that your precepts, precepts is another word for laws or rules or commandments or regulations, you've commanded that your precepts should be kept diligently. 1 John 5.3, 1 John 5.3 says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And John says, and his commandments are not burdensome for us. They're not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? And, and why, when we go to the Lord and say, can I be full? Can I be done? Why does the, the response from him know there's still more to do? Why should that not defeat us, but encourage us? Well, it's found back in verse 13. Did you notice the final few words of verse 13? And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today. What does it say after that? For your good. For your good. See, God, y'all, has not given us his commands and his precepts and his rules and his regulations and his guidelines and his expectations. He hasn't laid all of this upon us to just be cruel and vindictive and say, look at how hard this is and you'll never measure up. No, rather, God is a loving father, has provided his word for us has provided his instructions to us and he desires that we should follow after these things and, and never tap out and say, can I be done? Because he knows what is good for us is that we would be more like Jesus. He knows what is good for us is that we would be more godly. And so he's given us these laws, he's given us these commands, he's given us these precepts to follow. And maybe you're here this morning thinking, so are you telling me that God expects me to be perfect? I can't be perfect. Join the club of every other person in this room. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect, but, but this expectation of God that we would fear him through godly living, here's the good news. It's, it's buoyed by grace. Because you will fail, and I will fail, and the good news is we, like David, can say, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man whose iniquities the Lord has covered over. We can say with Jeremiah the prophet, his mercies are new when? Every morning. So that every morning, if, if we know Jesus and the forgiveness of the cross, that we can wake up that morning and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to set myself to fear you today. And I'm going to be buoyed by grace along the way. 
So as you and I sit here this morning on the precipice, precipice of a, a new week in front of us, we wonder, well, what does God want from me this week? The first thing that he wants from us this week is that we would fear him through godly living. I referenced 1 John 5, 3 a moment ago that our love for the Lord is related to us keeping the commandments, and that connection is also made here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look back in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? Okay, we covered that by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments. And then notice what comes next. To love him. To love God. The context of Deuteronomy helps us here. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 11, verse 1 You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, his commandments, always. Deuteronomy 11, verse 13. If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Deuteronomy 11, 22 For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him. So often we think about the Old Testament, we think about Deuteronomy, the law specifically, and we think that it's all about commandments, rules, regulations, precepts, statutes, things that I've been talking about a minute ago. And it is about those things. But not in isolation from our love for God and God's love for us. See, we don't love God. This is not a call for us to love God in order for him then to reciprocate and love us. That's got it backwards. This is a call for us to love the Lord because the Lord has already loved us so much. And that was true in Deuteronomy as well. Moses reminded the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6, or chapter 7 rather, verses 6 through 8. He reminds them of the fact that, look, God didn't choose you, Israel, because you were the biggest and baddest on the block. You weren't. He says you were the fewest among all the people. He says, when the Lord loved you, when the Lord set his heart on you, when the Lord loved you, he repeats the idea in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, that look, God initiated things. God set his affections and his love on you. In fact, think of the order. When do the covenants and the deliverance of God's people come? Before or after the law? They come before the law. God forms his people and knits them to his heart and makes his covenant promises to them. And then comes the law. It's not perform and then I will love you. It's I love you now. This is what it looks like to respond to that love and for you to love me. And so we love because the Lord has loved us. It's there in our passage. Look down at verse 15 in Deuteronomy 10. Then it says rather, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your father's and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are today. Why should we love the Lord? Because the Lord has already loved us so much. That's 1 John 4, 19. You may have already gone there in your mind. We love because, what? He first loved us. And in the Exodus, the love of the deliverance from Exodus and from slavery in Egypt, that's a microcosm of the love displayed at the cross. The love that you and I now know as as we look back at at the cross and we can say, what kind of love is this? 
that he would give his son for us, that he would send his son to die on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins, that he would cause his son to be risen from the dead so that we can live with him forever, that he would adopt us as sons and daughters of God. What kind of love is this? It's a love that he has loved us with first, and now the call, the expectation from the Lord is that we would love him in return. That's our second point this morning. It's this, love the Lord your God through godly living. God, what do you expect of me? What do you want from me? What should my life look like as a follower of Jesus? Well, yes, it should be marked by a fear of the Lord through godly living. But that fear of the Lord through godly living is a response to the love that God has given us. It's a manifestation of our love for the Lord. Remember John 21, Jesus is walking with Peter. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I, I, I love you. Jesus says, well, I want you to take care of my flock. A little later, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter says, uh, yeah, I, I, yes, God, I, I, I love you. And Jesus says, Peter, I want you to tend my, my sheep. A little bit later, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, Peter, I want you to feed my lambs. Why bring that up? Peter had the words. He kept professing, right? I love you. I love you. I love you. But what was Jesus calling for? The manifestation of that profession. The action. See, just like fear produces action, like we talked about in point number one, love produces action as well. Love doesn't just exist. Love looks. It, it, it shows. There's a, an old DC Talk song from back in the 90s, if you ever followed DC Talk. Not the most profound song or group, but the song's called Love is a Verb. And they're on to something with that. It's not just a concept. It's not just an idea. It's not just a noun. No, love is a verb. We, we show our love for someone, and that's when they know that we truly do love them when it shows up in our lives. The testimony of Scripture is clear that our love for the Lord is most clearly seen in our pursuit of godliness. John chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, our, our relationship between our godliness and abiding in the love of God. Or John 15, 14, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I wonder, do you, do you want to be the friend of Jesus? Well, it's not just about the words that come out of our mouth, but it's about following it up with the life that we live. This is why we love the Lord through godly living. We manifest our devotion to the Lord. And that's just it. We have to pursue godliness as a, a demonstration of our love for Jesus. If you love someone, you want to cultivate a closer relationship with that person. And central to that pursuit of the Lord, a closer relationship with the Lord, is a love-fueled obedience of his commands. King David asked this question in Psalm chapter 15, verse 1. He said, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? In other words, David is asking, Lord, who can have fellowship with you? Who can be with you, God? Who can dwell in your presence? Who can have that relationship with you? And David answers the question in verse 2 and following. 
He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Never be moved from where? The holy hill of the Lord. Who shall dwell on, on your holy hill, Lord? Well, it's, it's more than simply those that profess allegiance to the Lord. It's those that live it out and demonstrate the reality of that allegiance, right? John 14, 21. John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Here's Jesus telling us that his litmus test for us in our love for him, here it is in John 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. What does it mean to keep? Remember, it means to observe carefully and to do. That's the person who loves me. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. That you keep his commandments. And please remember the last part of that, and his commandments are not burdensome. And why are they not burdensome? Because in Deuteronomy 10, 13, it says that they were given for what? For our, our good. Our good. As an expression of God's love to us, and so we love him as well. Going back to my kids and their, their dinner time. If one of my kids takes their plate over to the trash can and they're telling their mom how much they love the food as they're scraping it into the garbage can, it loses its impact. But when my kids look at their mom and say, Mom, that was so good. Can I have seconds? Can I have thirds? Is there more? And they get up and they go and they fill their plate again. They come back and they eat that all. And then they go back and they fill their plate and again. They come back and they eat that all. Then when they say, Mom, thanks, that was great, the words carry a lot more weight, don't they? What changed? The evidence. The evidence is there. Do you know that Jesus himself said that he obeyed the Father so that the world would know that he loves God? That Jesus said that part of the reason for his obedience was to demonstrate his love for the Father? It's in John chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. John 15, verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Here it is. But I do as the Father has commanded me. Here it comes. So that the world may know that I love the Father. There's our Savior saying, I, I, I pursue godliness so that the world may know that I love the Father. Y'all, if our Savior's pursuit of godliness was in an effort to demonstrate his love for the Father, how much more should our pursuit of godliness be in an effort to demonstrate our love for Jesus and the Father? So if you're here this morning and you're finding obedience to be burdensome, the answer is not looking to obey less, but to cultivate a deeper love for Jesus. To think more about his goodness, his grace, his compassion, his mercy. To think more about the deliverance that you've experienced at the cross. To dwell more on those passages of scripture that stir your affections for Jesus, that cause you to be so grateful for him, for what he's done for you, for what he will do for you. The more we love Jesus, the lighter his burdens will feel. 
the lighter his commandments will feel. So we must love the Lord. See, because here's the thing. The world is going to offer you all kinds of its trinkets and treasures. And they're going to be way more accessible. And the bar for obtaining them is going to be way lower than what the Lord is calling us to do. And so if we are to remain faithful, if we are to remain obedient, if we are to keep trusting and keep pursuing the Lord, there has to be something that fuels that. And that love for Christ is the fuel that we need. Speaking of the reminders of our deliverance, of God's work for us at the cross, another reason why God desires this love-fueled, reverential obedience of him is because he's worthy of it. He's simply worthy of it. In Exodus chapter 20, after God has led the people out from, the, from Egypt and, and taken them in on their way eventually to the promised land through a roundabout 40-year wandering, but before they get there, he is talking to them and he gives them the, the Ten Commandments. And one of the commandments that he gives to them in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, says this, you shall not bow down to them. What is the them? These false gods, right? Idols. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That word serve in Exodus 25, in relation to these idols, it shows up in our passage back in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look again at verse 12. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him? Okay, we've seen those two. Now, what's next? To serve him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The Hebrew term there, serve, can have a broad range of meaning. Everything from gardening, tilling the soil in preparation for planting seed, to a master obeying his, or a servant rather, obeying his master to the, the act of worshiping a god or a deity. I think the context of Deuteronomy helps us understand which type of serving Moses was talking about here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. What type of serving the Lord expects of us. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, we find the word used. Moses is warning the Israelites. He says, Beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven... And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. There's our word. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. And what is Moses warning against there? He's saying, don't look up at the skies and be so enamored and enraptured by the heavens and the starry host that you begin to serve them. You begin to, to worship them. Worship them. Deuteronomy 4.28 there's, there's a warning that, that continues here where he says, if, if not, you're going to end up going after these other nations. And it says, and there you will, here's our word again, serve gods of wood and stone. You're going to worship them. And so back in, in our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, when he says the Lord requires or ex expects of us that we would serve him with all of our heart and with all of our soul, I think what Moses is talking about here is he wants us to worship him with everything that we are. And y'all, this is a natural overflow of our love. There's a relationship here between our love and our worship, just like there was a relationship between our, our fear and our love. And, and the relationship here, as you read Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, the end there, you should serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Maybe you're thinking another verse that we referenced earlier this morning. 
Deuteronomy 6, 5, where it says, you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And now in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses says, you should serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, our love for the Lord will naturally overflow into a worship of the Lord. The two concepts are related. Well, what does it mean to worship the Lord? The word worship means to ascribe worth or value to something. To give something value. To demonstrate that we think something is worthy and valuable. And so just like fear requires or produces action, and just like love produces action, worship should also produce action in us. Worship should also look like something. And when we are worshiping God, what it should look like is that we are, are worshiping God by living a godly life. That's our final point this morning, our third expectation. Worship the Lord through godly living. Fear him through godly living. Love him through godly living. And then finally, worship him through godly living. Just a few verses down from our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. Moses wrote, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall, here's our word again, you shall serve him. You shall worship him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. Verse 21, he is your praise. God is, is your praise. Why is God our praise? Well, for Israel, it was because they were looking back at the Exodus going, because he's delivered us from slavery in Egypt. And he's promised us the entrance into the promised land. Christian, this morning, why is God your praise? Such that your life would be lived in full devotion to him as a display of worship to him? It's because of the deliverance that we have at the cross that we look back at that and say, okay, that is why God is our praise. He is your God. He has done these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. See, the Lord is worthy of our worship. And there's many ways that we worship the Lord, aren't there? We've done some of that this morning already. We've sung these songs together. Christ be magnified on the altar of my life. Right? We've sung these these hymns and songs and praises that are ascribing worth to God, saying God is worthy, he's valuable. That's one way we worship. We worship also as we sit under the preaching and teaching of the word of God because we are sitting under the authority not of the preacher, but of the word, of the scriptures. And so in studying God's word, we are worshiping God, ascribing worth to him through learning from his word. But worship doesn't stop here. When we wrap up this morning and you walk out those doors, worship doesn't end. When you get in your car and you go home and you're listening to Chris Tomlin or the Gettys or whoever you like to listen to in the car on the way home and you're singing and you're at the stoplight and you don't care because you're just having a personal concert between you and God. And you're worshiping the Lord. Well, when you get home and turn off the car and get out of the car, guess what? Worship's not done. Or when you finish listening to a sermon podcast, worship's not over. In fact, so many theologians and pastors have said it is worth repeating. It's this, we live worshiping. We live worshiping. In other words, there's never a moment of our lives in which we are not worshiping. The question is simply, what or who are we worshiping? In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul indicts all of human, humankind. And his main indictment, his main charge boils down to the fact that humanity has a worship problem. Not a worship deficiency, but a worship problem. And here it is. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 
and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and here's the indictment, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. You see, everybody worships. And we never stop worshiping. The question is, what or who are we worshiping? And for us, the Lord expects and requires that we would worship him and him alone with all of our heart and with all of our soul, full devotion to the Lord. And so what that means for us, Christian, is that our battle for godliness on a daily basis is a battle for worship. When you consider that sin that tempts you, the question is, are you going to worship the Lord and worship God by denying your flesh? Or are you going to worship yourself by indulging in your flesh? The choice is not, do I worship or do I not worship? The question is, what or who am I going to worship? But we are always worshiping, and sanctification is a battle for worship, that we would be more and more and more like Jesus. And the more and more and more we are like Jesus, the more and more and more we are going to want to worship him with everything that we are, so that we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. Okay, well, when, when is that true, Paul? On Sunday mornings when we gather together for the, the church? Yes but also when we drive home and also at the office and also at home and also at the gym and also in the backyard and also in the driveway as we're talking to our neighbors. Everywhere and anywhere, our aim should be to live as Christ with our whole lives an act of worship to the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.9. 2 Corinthians 5.9, he says, so that whether we are at home or away, we have one aim. We make it our aim to do what? To please him. Lord, I want my life to please you. Hebrews 13, 15. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, through Jesus, let us continually, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That our lives should be an offering of worship to the Lord. And what does that look like? That looks like living that out through godliness. Again, if, if the commandments of the Lord are a burden to you this morning, can I just encourage you that maybe the answer is a perspective shift? To understand that your obedience to the Lord is worshiping him. And I hope that encourages you because here's what that means, Christian. That means there is no mundane act of obedience in, in the Christian life anymore. That even the small stuff, the stuff that you might think is, is rote, the stuff that you might think is, is just repetitive, there's significance in every act of obedience because every act of obedience is an expression of your love and worship and devotion to God. And he is pleased with it. And so there's new meaning to all of it. And so we live these godly lives and we strive for godliness not in order to curry favor with God or to check boxes or to make ourselves acceptable to him. Now we pursue these lives of godliness as expressions of our devotion for him, our love for him, and an act of worship rendered to him who is worthy of it. Because remember verse 17 again. The Lord your God is God of gods. He's Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, the awesome God. So there you have him. 
his expectations for us. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear him, to love him, and to worship him? Some of you heard this message excited. And you're charged up now, and you're ready to go out and take the world by the horns. You're ready to go out and say, I'm going to do this this week, and I'm ready to go, and let's go, and can you stop preaching so I can go and get after this? Can I just encourage you this morning to remember God's enabling grace? Philippians 2, which I alluded to earlier, that we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's a verse that comes after that, which says, knowing that it's God who's at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Christian, let's just remember this week, if we're motivated, we're charged up, we're ready to go, that as we go out to obey the Lord, that we are obeying not in our power. It's not, hey, Lord, look at how impressive I am. No, we are in obeying through the enabling grace of God so that he gets all the glory through all of the obedience that we render to him, right? Some of you, though, may have listened to this sermon and you're just discouraged. You are already feeling the weight feeling the weight of feeling like you don't measure up. You've come off of a week where you would say, I didn't do a very good job of fearing the Lord, loving the Lord, or worshiping the Lord this week. If that's you this morning, can I remind you of God's forgiving grace? Christian, if, if you are in Christ, there's forgiveness at the cross. If you are feeling the weight of your sin this morning, then God wants to draw you out into confession and repentance. And what does the scripture say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us. So Christian, if this message was discouraging to you, let me try to spin it for you and say, look, you can go to the cross with your sins and confess and repent and you will be forgiven. And just like Jeremiah said again, guess what? His mercies are new this morning. And they're going to be new tomorrow and the next day and the day after that and the next one to come. So that bag of your failures that you've been carrying around and lugging around that make this so hard to run the race, can you just drop that and just start running? Realizing that you are forgiven in Christ. To say, okay, let's go. Let's fear him, love him, and worship him. There may be others of you in the room this morning who are not Christians. And maybe your thought process is this. See, I knew it. I knew that Christians are all just about this legalism. Obey, obey, obey. Do, do, do. Commandment, 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 and you'll never be good enough. I knew it. If that's you this morning, number one, I feel like I've, I've failed you. But number two, I, can I just try to redeem it here towards the end one more time by telling you that this was not a message about how to be saved. If you want to be right with God, please hear me. If, if you are, would say, I'm not a Christian, then we would say you're not right with God. There's no two ways about that. So if you are not right with God, you can leave here right with him. If you will trust that he died on the cross for your sins, and I know you have them because I have them, and so does every single other person in this room. If you trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, believe that he rose from the dead so that you can live forever with him, then God will respond to that by giving you the spirit to be able to follow him as your king. 
The good news of the gospel is the gospel's free. You don't have to clean yourself up first. It's available for you this morning. And I pray that you would come to Christ this morning. And if you do, then we can sit down and talk more about what this sermon has meant. That our lives as a result of our relationship with Jesus should be lived as expressions of our fear of God, our love for him, and our worship of him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for Jesus. So thankful for his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his goodness, his love for us. Lord, we are aware that we could never earn your favor and earn your righteousness, and we are thankful that you haven't asked us to do that. But Lord, in response to what you've done for us, help us to offer our entire lives to you as an act of worship and to follow you with all we are, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.